Welcome to the Terrawatt Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I speak to entrepreneurs, innovators, and thought leaders in an attempt to demystify Earth observation, satellite data, and all its applications. Today, I have two guests, Bessie Schwartz, co-founder and CEO, and Subit Chakraborty, VP of Technology, both from a company called Floodbase. Floodbase, which used to be called Cloud to Street before, is a climate tech startup using satellite imagery to build flood data products for use by the insurance sector. In this episode, Bessie, Subit, and I discussed what Floodbase does, their tech stack, what types of satellite data they use, why they publish their methodologies and collaborate with the academic community, how EO has evolved over the years, and more. And now I bring you Floodbase. Hi, Subit. Hi, Bessie. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Brilliant. Let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. Uh, Starting with you, Bessie, what's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? First, I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, Floodbase, uh, but I've been working on the problem behind Floodbase directly for over 10 years now uh, with my co-founder and our founding team member. But I have been working on climate change and specifically climate adaptation for my entire career. That basically means I've been looking at the ways in which the changes to our environment and the climate crisis are affecting communities now and are getting far worse in a myriad of ways and how we can build support for communities, whole economies, businesses in order to adjust to these changes. So I met my co-founder um, in grad school um, at, at Yale and had been looking for a bunch of different data solutions to provide more accessible information to communities I had worked with across the U.S. when Google presented a extremely early version of Google Earth Engine. Like we're talking, I think, no error messages at the time. They basically had just put in some, you know, NASA repositories on their servers and came to tell uh uh, sort of folks uh, in the community, like, what do you think you guys can do with this? And, you know, Beth and I immediately saw that a new way of analyzing disasters was possible, a different way than we had been taught, you're being taught in grad school, suddenly with the wealth of satellite data that was now able to be crunched and then made more available through insights to some of the very same communities and businesses I had been working with uh, previously. So, uh, that's a little of the background. That was about 10 years ago now, and uh, really proud of what we've built since then. Sure, yeah, we'll get into the details. Uh, Subit, what's your story? Yeah, so when I started graduate school or my PhD program at the University of Florida, I essentially was uh, f- focused on signal processing and machine learning from kind of like video and audio-based signals. Um, and my professor gave me an opportunity to work on an, another project looking for, looking at radar returns from agricultural fields from kind of like ground based radars. And I had no ex- experience or expertise, had, you know, not really even been on a farm, uh, ever. But, you know, that's where the funding was. So I tried it and then got like, you know, fell in love with kind of like earth observation. And, you know, that led me to spending a lot of time on, like farms and working at two kind of like companies that deliver insights uh, for agricultural uh, lands in the U.S. And then, you know, work with a lot of satellite imagery and a lot of kind of like machine learning, deep deep learning techniques. Uh, And then when the opportunity came at Floodbase to kind of like, you know, lead a team of excellent scientists 
to, um, you know, like make flood maps and, you know, I flood floods, you know, kind of affect the place where I'm from, which is Calcutta in Eastern India a lot. And so I always kind of like wanted to work on uh, mitigating flood impact. And this was the perfect opportunity. And uh, so now I'm, you know, VP of uh, technology at Floodbase. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot about these fields and will continue to learn more in the future. All right. So we've kind of hinted on what you're doing. Well, people can guess based on the name, but uh, Bessie, do you want to give a quick elevator pitch of what Floodbase is and what it does today? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important actually to, to take a step back and think about why floods. So floods are the most common and costly disaster uh, on on Earth, uh, yet they're one of the least protected uh, climate uh, disasters. Only about 83% of flood losses are covered by insurance. So uh, Floodbase is really focused on enabling the world to adapt to flood risk specifically by filling the information gaps for major uh, stakeholders who can protect against it. We're uh, specifically built an end-to-end solution, a data solution for a new type of insurance that enables insurers, reinsurers, in order to cover a vast majority, uh, huge majority more of people, assets, uh, governments, other types of business uh, risks. So um, today we work with some of the largest uh, uh, risk transfer or insurance uh, players in order to offer new products out there that can be done uh, remotely. So triggered based on our satellite or remote detection of floods uh, can cover parts of the world that have never been able to be covered before and then cover other types of new risk like non-physical business interruption risk that just have not been covered by the market to date. All right, fair enough. Makes sense. Going back to how you started, you talked about the, you know, the time you started with the Google project. I'm wondering, you know, at that point when you started, how did you see the potential that that this could be a company and this could be a commercial product? Because, you know, doing research is one thing or winning, you know, competitions and challenges is one thing, but then getting into a full flow, full blown company mode is different. So I'm curious, how did the journey happen? It really started from, I guess, two two ways of looking at this, but this huge gap, the our inability to protect and cover this amount of flood risk is both a massive humanitarian and economic stability problem, but also a major market opportunity for insurers who really want to expand their market to cover more of those losses. That's missed business opportunity. And so they really went hand in hand, but I really first encountered this problem very much firsthand on the ground. I had been working for years um, in communities um, across the U.S., um, working at the community level, working with businesses that just did not have the ability to adapt to climate change. And this was, you know, I started my career working in coastal Florida where uh, people knew that the environment was changing. Many folks knew they were going to have to leave where their families had been for generations, but just did not have the information that they needed to plan or to leverage their um, their politicians to help them relocate or make some other kinds of um, adjustments. So it was very clear that a lack of access to information about climate disasters with floods being the biggest was holding back a whole lot of different actions that both meant massive amounts of um, missed opportunity business-wise, um, but also 
led to a major inability by society at the largest level down to some of the individual community members and young people I've worked with in Florida to take some of the actions that they needed to. So I went back to grad school to really look for new solutions to make information more accessible uh, for folks on the ground and had been, again, studying traditional disaster science that kind of is, while very, very good, kind of led us to this problem of a gap in accessibility around information. And then when, you know, Google came and kind of showed this sort of how they were making the new satellite revolution more accessible to to everybody, it was pretty clear that this was going to be able to kind of revolutionize and fill this problem, um, humanitarian and, and the business opportunity. All right, makes sense. So what are your core product offerings today? Who are your customers? I think you mentioned the insurance market. So is that what your product is aimed at? So it'd be good to get an overview of you know your products and what they do. The primary customer for Floodbase today is the insurer and reinsurer that is looking to do what's called parametric uh, flood insurance. Uh, parametric insurance, just to kind of take a step back, is a more innovative or new type of insurance that basically pays out insurance based on some event happening and a data analysis that this event has actually occurred, as opposed to someone with a clipboard coming to your property after the event, assessing the damage and giving you a payout based on you know the, the little write-up of what happened there. Uh, so this is parametric insurance. It has all kinds of advantages. Um, it's also what we're doing is not attempting to replace existing clipboard insurance. Um, but rather to um, uh, to just add more insurance um, into the market. So what's required to make this new type of insurance happen? It's having a reliable source of information about the floods happening uh, themselves as they're happening, and then understanding how frequently they happen so that an insurer can determine the uh, price of it, how often they want to pay out. And those are really the two features behind Floodbase's uh, data product. So the first thing we do is monitor floods in near real time, primarily through direct observations with about 17 different satellites staring at the Earth all the time. We can actually also fill in gaps between the direct observations uh, through AI models that un- see what's happening and can make sort of synthetic maps. So that's the first layers. We're mapping the floods in near real time uh, continuously. Uh, we can go up to every hour in the US. Uh, and then the second component is running our algorithms back in time to map the observed patterns of flooding, not the simulated uh, pattern, but the actual observed pattern of flooding as it's happening, which enables us to really reliably say how often a flood is going to happen in the near future. These two things coupled together are what an insurer needs to price their insurance policy anywhere in the world and then trigger that policy when the event actually happens and you deserve a payout. So that's basically what goes into our um, parametric uh, flood insurance data product. Gotcha. Okay. So and how do you go about pitching your product to the market? Is that do they view that as to the model that they are creating or do they kind of see it as a replacement? Because there could be, you know, like you mm. mentioned, there could be perceived as, you know, coming in with a new technology as if you're going to go and create your own insurance product. But that's not what you're here to do, correct? Great question. To be really clear, we are not uh, an insurance company ourselves. We're not what's sometimes referred to or is a MGA uh, where you offer policies 
uh, on behalf of another insurer. We're not offering policies. We are simply providing the data layer, this objective kind of third-party data layer to make everybody within the ecosystem, the uh, policy holder, uh, who could be an individual, could be an entire national government, could be a resort somewhere in the world with a property. We want to make sure those policy holders are confident in the data and the insurer knows is confident in the data and they have the information they need. And that's what enables the transaction to happen. So we think we perform a really important function within this ecosystem that it's pretty important that we're kind of a outside of the um, we're a third party within this um, dynamic. The, the customer is a uh, insurer or reinsurer. Um, we simply take a percentage of the premium um, on top of what's being paid then as the uh, through the through the uh, policy. Uh, and then it's an API to the insurer. They use it to price the policy. We actually don't charge uh, to price it, to design the entire thing. We only charge if there's an actual transaction made. So it makes it easy for our insurers to play around with things to try out this new form of insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once the policy is set, bound, we're just monitoring every single day, in some cases every single hour, the um, particular location that's being covered by the insurance policy. Got it. Fair enough. Makes sense. Yeah, you need to kind of enable them to do that to to increase the adoption, given that it's such an emerging uh, market. All right, Subit, let's come to the tech stack. Let's talk about satellites and how what kind of satellite data you use. Um, yeah, first, just talk about your tech stack. What kind of data you use? Um, guessing there's a lot of radars involved. But it'd be good to know, uh, you know, an overview of what your tech stack looks like. Yeah. So actually, it uses kind of like almost every public satellite, whether it be optical or radar. So we use Sentinel-1, Sentinel-2, all the Landsat missions, and also the MODIS and VIRS, like moderate resolution sensors. Um, And then we also use kind of like private satellites like Planet, um, Capella and uh, Umbra. We essentially have uh, deep learning algorithms that we train for uh, almost all of those satellites. Not every single one of them, but almost all of them have like deep learning algorithms that we have built. Uh, and, and you know, it, it kind of um, uses training data from all across the world, from every biome, from like different variety of like urban slash rural areas. So it is uh, extremely representative and it's a huge data set. So we, you know, also kind of like every year go through kind of like accuracy metrics and, and, and improve those models. So that's kind of like the backbone of our infrastructure. Uh, and then we have kind of like other models as well. Um, so one of the problems with uh, satellites is that, you know, there's clouds and optical or, you know, like in radar, you have kind of like big gaps of coverage from public radar missions. Uh, what we do is we use um, uh, like states from hydrologic models that run continuously uh, to interpolate or you know fill in gaps when there's gaps in the satellite data, and that is done through kind of like a different semantic uh, like deep deep learning algorithm. Um, and right now, it's not available everywhere in the world. Like that that thing is not available everywhere in the world, but it's pretty soon going to be. So we have kind of like these two different things. One is kind of like available everywhere in the world, um, uses every satellite that you, that you can think of, and the other is more uh, continuous and available only in the US. Uh, so that's kind of like the algorithms that we have designed. 
kind of like when we are near real time monitoring, we have a tech stack that is composed of like an Apache Beam pipeline that gets all the satellite data, uh, applies our deep learning networks using kind of like a bunch of GPUs in the cloud somewhere, uh, and then builds flood maps uh, and, and then serves up the flood maps using a fast API backend. Uh, and that goes to insurers, like Bessie was saying. And it also goes through kind of like, you know, there's like report generators and other uh, things that we use like internally. Got it. So do you think uh, customers care where the data comes from when they are using your API? They definitely care because transparent, in the sense that transparency about what this data is, the accuracy of it, the certainty bounds around it are incredibly important. Um, I'd say different industries respond to this in somewhat different ways. Mm -hmm. For insurers, uh, reliability is just paramount and sure. understanding of it is really critical. This is why we publish data. This is why we make all of our methods very open to our insurers. Um, in some ways, insurers don't care less about the exact accuracy as they do just knowing what the accuracy is and having real confidence in that. Other sectors that we, we also do do work with, like governments or humanitarian organizations that are responding to disasters, they're just like, give me everything you got right now. I don't care if it's not what I thought it was going to get or just give me the best picture. And, and they do care about um, accuracy more uh, in, in the moment and would sacrifice for it. Yeah, for sure. And I was going to ask about the, you know, the publishing of your findings and your methodology in a bit, but because you mentioned I was going to come to it, it's, it's an area I've thought about a lot. Uh, do companies need to do that? Because essentially some of it is, is their IP, um, especially your methodology. And I've thought a lot about why is it important, but given your sector, it becomes important. Was that the reason you decided to go ahead and publish it and, you know, have that data open? What was the rationale for, you know, having your data? you know, out in the open, probably not the entire data set, but you have some, you know, data that is open for access and you also published your methodology or, you know, you have peer-reviewed publications. We publish a lot and that is a strong value that we have. I also think it's incredibly aligned with the market as we've been talking about, but also to be clear, it's a tiny fraction, I would say, of the kind of overall data and, and algorithms um, that we have. So while we're really open and describing kind of like broadly what we do. And we certainly publish in real detail, even we haven't even open source some of the data sets that, that we have. It is in some ways just the tip of the tip of the spear or tip of the iceberg on course, it. Yeah. But exactly, you, you, you hit it on the head that um, it's really important, particularly for insurers, but I think for the entire market to really understand what's actually going on here. And we're really proud of this new um, sort of scientific method that we've um, come up with uh, to analyze floods remotely, continuously, and as reliably as possible. In many ways, it is very, very new for the insurance industry, particularly around flooding, um, but it's new for lots of other uh, folks as well. And we want to make sure that um, it's clear that this is really validated deep science and not just you know, don't take our word for it, take, you know, the leading experts within our relative scientific fields, whether that's, um, you know, hydrology or computer vision or I think any number of the other kind of interdisciplinary uh, fields that we're, we have to play in in order to um, create what we've created. For sure. So, Sibit, what is the secret sauce then? Because you produce high resolution maps and now you're able to, you know, map the floods in near real time 
well, first, maybe start with why was it not possible before, and then talk about what your secret sauce is without really, you know, going too much into details. Why was it not possible before? I think, like, we've never had the amount of uh, remote sensing, kind of like both um, technology and kind of like open data sets by public organizations in the past. So, you know, even if you go kind of 10 years back, you know, you didn't really have this much information available. So there was, you know, kind of like no way to to do that. Uh, and then uh, the secret sauce is, I think, not relying on any technology particularly, but kind of like figuring out how to utilize the strengths of each signal technology, each single technology, be it optical satellites, radar satellites, hydrologic models, which, you know, like... Some of these are like more fashionable than the others, but all of that has like a place in our tech stack and we use it, uh, you know, we use all of it. So I think just like figuring out a way to use all of that together. And then, you know, just kind of like another point on, you know, uh, why we publish is that uh, just by the nature of what we do, it's like extremely kind of state of the art. And even if we don't, even if a company like ours doesn't publish, they do need to engage with academia because like, you know, otherwise you're just like operating in a vacuum and there's these huge problems that no single company is capable of solving by itself. But, you know, what I have found is that when you engage just to take from the academic community, but don't kind of like give back anything, like it's not really a good mode of operation. And, you know, like people don't take your ideas or, or your insights seriously. So I think like giving back, you know, into kind of like publishing or attending conferences, engaging with the community is just like part of our responsibility to be at the state of the art as much as kind of, you know, like doing podcasts or, you know, other media that we do. Like in some sense, it's just like a way to outreach into a community that like, you know, we have used a lot and we consider ourselves a part of. And not to mention that, you know, insurers, you know, will trust companies more who publish, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, because I feel like the future of Earth Observation is going to be a combination of, you know, companies that can develop that trust uh, by being open. And I had a few people on my podcast who also talked about it and the need. And the dif- that's also the difference, right? We can call ourselves software companies because essentially it's a software model, but then underlying the software is, is science. And, you know, if you need to validate that science, you're better off partnering with academics and, you know, having them look at your publication and perhaps, you know, makes your model better over time. Yeah, I want to move on to satellite data in terms of gaps. So what have what gaps have you found in the availability of satellite data today? Because, you know, flooding has been an area that I've looked into the last couple of years because I had a gig at a weather company and, you know, I got to know about the gaps in radar and it was just absolutely baffling that I did not know this before. So how do you circumvent that? Um, obviously, there's not a lot of radar coverage and radar is one of the most important technologies for tracking precipitation. Yeah, how do you circumvent that in terms of the lack of data and what would make it better? Uh, I think like in terms of kind of circumventing that, it's just, you know, the, the thing that I said before, which is just like use it as a tool, but not as something that kind of like you need for a particular mm-hmm. region. So we just use radar or SAR in particular as like a tool that kind of give helps us in a few places sometimes. And we uh, usually have a lot of other satellites in addition. Um, and, and then we also use kind of our, uh, you know, partners like Capella and Umbra very, uh, judiciously, uh, you know, whenever there's like, you know, complete gap in coverage and we need to, I mean, you know, private 
Earth observation data is expensive, but you know we mm-hmm. we use it whenever we need to. So that's that's the first thing I think. In terms of gaps, um, I mean, I can speak as a scientist who's interested in detecting water. I would really like an L-band uh, radar that is sure. uh, <laughs> that that is not every once a week. So if there was something like the Sentinel two constellation, but like mm-hmm. L-band radars, um, kind of like NICAR, right? Like, but not you know mm-hmm. every fourteen days. If it was every three sure. days. That would solve a lot of problems. So uh, it would also solve a very technical problem, which is kind of like detecting water under canopies, which you know mm-hmm. is, is a challenge. So yeah, yeah. So Elband, I mean, it's. I think when the podcast is going to be published, you're going to be the second company that highlighted this, and I really hope a data provider is listening. Uh, yeah, because you know the you know the two satellites that are up there, if I'm not mistaken, are from Argentina and from Japan, correct? So it's um, yeah, it's, it, it was kind of somewhat baffling that neither the space agencies or the private companies have looked into this, even though there is so much uh, potential in terms of commercial application. So uh, can we talk a a little bit about the challenges of using um, Earth observation data today, especially SAR, because you're, you know, big uses of SAR. What is the status status quo with respect to SAR today? Uh, Obviously, you know, companies are coming up, Umbra is launching more, Capella is launching more, ISI already has some. but in terms of availability, I think it's it's all right. But it seems like in terms of usability and the processing, you know, we, t- we talk a lot about how SAR is hard to process, well, pre-process and then process. So maybe talk a little bit about what the challenges are in terms of SAR and what could be done. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd just like to recognize the huge leaps that we have made in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, when I started my PhD uh, looking at this, like Sentinel wasn't there. There was like no SAR. There was no radar. There was SMOS, which was one L-band mission. Um, and it, you know, the footprint size was 36 kilometer. Um, so, you know, I com- kind of came into this field in like a real vacuum. And right now, you know, there is a vacuum, but it's not the same as, you know, it was in 2013. Um, sure. Having said that, yes, I think that, you know, Sentinel-1 is is extremely useful and effective for us. Um, but, you know, just kind of like getting the data, processing it is, is, is hugely painful. Um, and I think the, the snap toolbox is, is a great effort, but is not kind of like really, um, a tool that can be used in production without kind of like a lot of interventions. So just, I think, uh, you know, a kind of more emphasis on how to process and make SAR data more accessible is going to be very useful. Um, and I think, Companies like Capella and Umbra are, are doing a great job at, um, at, at, at kind of making the sensors better, which is obviously, you know, what we need, which is kind of like what Planet did when they, you know, like were in their teenage years. So Planet mm-hmm. first started putting cell phone cameras into space and then quickly realized they needed to make the radiometry a lot better. So I think mm-hmm. that's the place where Capella and Umbra today are focusing their efforts on. I would love to see them also focus on making the data more accessible, um, process it, and uh, so that you know companies like uh, Floodbase can just use uh, you know mm-hmm. quote unquote off the shelf radar data rather than having to go through a lot of the steps ourselves. Yeah, the analysis ready uh, data. So I think that Bessie, from your point of view, what would be your wish? Because it seems like from what Subit's saying, there's a lot of time and effort spent on you know, mm. doing boring things, repetitive things. So from a, from a CEO standpoint, do you have a wish list or, you know, the best case scenario for what the satellite industry should provide? Yeah, I guess I'll speak a bit more to sort of what the, the 
the innovations and partnerships and how we really like to work with these companies themselves. So we, we actually worked with a, a huge number um, of them, both public and private. And the way we engage with them can be, I'd say, vastly different. And um, the kind of the ease of the way we can work together, the feedback we can provide both ways, the amount we can kind of uh, collaborate to set up special, like for us, we're often tasking during disasters. So time is of the essence here. Uh, and the reliability in which we can make sure that they get into place is, is really important and those kinds of things. Uh, one important caveat is that um, uh, tasking is actually um, really doesn't work for parametric insurance, at least in our opinion, because as I mentioned before, the insurer will actually trade a little bit more accuracy for just reliability to make sure that it's going to be there every day, no matter what, you're getting the picture at the time you said you're getting the picture, you're getting the reading. And so it's just a little bit of a, a, a caveat regarding um, kind of our primary product. But I'd say it's also, to, to Subit's point, really exciting to have seen the market evolve over the last 10 years. And I think the way in which they've partnered with um, industry and partnered with sort of the analytics layer within the uh, satellite uh, and remote sensing revolution has been, I think, a really um, exciting one. Um, and so, you know, watch even like, you know, the, the planet um, history and and going from kind of where, where they were to really like being able to lean into and even help foster the ecosystem of analytics companies that are focused on taking the information from where it is and then connecting it to the market. And we really see our role here as deeply understanding the particular use case and users and building up the trust that we were talking about before with folks as sort of particular as the insurance industry or, you know, the UN as they're responding to disasters, but then also understanding, be able to sort of speak and handle the data on the other side. So we really see this as our unique role is creating something differently here. And we really love working with, you know, like I think Capella and Umbra are really outstanding in this regard, actually, just to call out those folks in how they understand our role within the market and their role within the market. And we're able to create, I think, really fantastic partnerships um, because of that, create like fundamentally different things that we just wouldn't have been able to do on our own. Yeah, and I'd just like to add one thing that, you know, Umbra is partly doing, which is great, is kind of just having less restrictive licenses on yep. the products, on tasking products. Because, um, you know, when we are tracking a disaster, like whoever is ta tasking for that region wants the same thing ultimately, which is, mm -hmm. you know, pictures of uh, affected communities. And if you're kind of competing against each other for that tasking pool, like that is useful mm -hmm. for no one. You know, sure. I, we would rather kind of like that image be available for everyone to use. Um, and like, you know, that brings me to the next point, which is kind of more collaborative tasking. So, for example, during Hurricane Ian, you know, mm -hmm. uh, based on which models you were looking at, it was pretty clear that, you know, parts of Florida were being hit. But then all of kind of some companies, you know, satellite tasking plans involved like completely different regions, which were from earlier models. So, you know, if I could sure. just call someone up and be like, hey, I think you're trying to look at the hurricane, but these are not the right areas right now. That would be mm -hmm. very useful and, and, and lead to kind of like imagery that's more useful to like mm -hmm. everyone. Yeah, 100%. I think we'll, or at least I hope that we'll reach a point where they'll be able to get to that uh, point themselves because they, they should be able to, you know, have an interaction with 
the the weather models and so that they can yeah. you know preemptively task the satellites that would be the best case scenario uh, and i also you know want to say that there's the disaster charter so i don't know which of the companies are engaged with the disaster charter from from the un which would also be useful for uh, having imagery that is open and yeah we, we know a lot about the you know the challenges in the industry with respect to licensing and you know accessibility and usability we can you know keep going on about it but Subhidal, i want to ask what it'd be if you were to have um, you know a magic wand and you want to change something the next morning what did, what would you wish uh, exist the the next morning you know you can use that magic wand and change something or have something available in the earth observation industry uh that's actually like quite a broad mandate and i don't i, I you know i, I <laughs> i'm i'm not i'm going to resist the temptation to ask for three more wishes but um <laughs> i think what i would really want is um you know like a public constellation of sar satellites that can image the earth on a more regular cadence than sentinel 1 um, and that delivers that data in an easy to use API without kind of like processing burdens. Um, I think from where I am sitting, that would change my life massively. So sort of like a planet constellation, but for, uh, you know, using, using Elbansar, um, and Quadpole, if you know, if that's not too much. But since I'm, you know, like, since it's magic, I can ask for like all of this. <laughs> Sure, all the above. Uh, yeah, well, it'd be it'd be interesting. I think there's potential probably for that happening uh, because people are talking about it from an emission standpoint. And I think mm-hmm. once people get to get serious about adaptation, maybe they'll start looking into it, and you know, one, it'll get to the ears and the tables of people who can make that decision. All right, let's come back to your company and you had a recent rebrand from cloud to street which is how a lot of people probably also listening know you to Floodbase. How did that happen, and why did that happen? The, it was it was a pretty monumental moment and a pretty exciting moment for us. Uh, for us, it really just represents the new a new phase uh, in our company. Um, uh, Cloud Street established, I think, a lot of the foundational work in building up over ten years a new sort of flood detection method uh, and working really closely with governments, about thirty two governments around the world and the UN, in order to do really important work. Uh, on the humanitarian sector side. Uh, and as we now move more into uh, financial climate services, starting with parametric insurance, FloodBase really represents uh, the future and the direction that we're going with um, in that. So alongside the our new fancy, beautiful name, uh, we also announced uh, a Series A led by uh, Lower Carbon, um, that was really about us scaling more of our parametric insurance uh, data solution to cover more places. It also came along with um, announcing a new uh, hurricane uh, parametric solution by which you can actually add uh, now water or flooding into a wind-based hurricane parametric cover um, in the U.S. So it's really representing kind of a new future and a new phase with us in which we're building off of all of the work we've done in the past, the science, our continued support to governments and partnership with the UN um, and other humanitarian organizations, but a much deeper move into the financial services that have been really fueling a lot of um, our growth and we think will fuel a lot of the climate adaptation work uh, around the world in the future. 
Got it. Do you call yourself an insure tech company? I mean, I don't want to. I don't like like these labels and something. But some people put you in the Earth observation satellite category. Some people would probably put you in the insure tech category. Does it matter? Yeah, we're category less. No, I mean, yeah, I definitely would call ourselves an insure tech. I would definitely call ourselves a um, Earth observation. I would also call us a climate tech. Um, I think some of the most interesting things and some of the biggest opportunities are actually happening at the sort of intersection sure. of putting together a lot of different categories. Makes sense. Um, here's a question about how you see the future of the insurance industry going. Because do, do you see, <laughs> do, you see <laughs> do you see insurance companies vertically integrating, well, in the backwards, mm-hmm. meaning do you think that they're going to start building teams, data science teams to do similar to what mm-hmm. you're trying to do? Is that is that really a prospect? Do you see that happening? Or do you see that, you know, that's not really their area of expertise? Yeah, there's really two things. So not really their area of um, expertise. There also is a huge value, as I was saying just a little bit before, on having it be a third-party, individually trusted data source that's determining whether or not you get the payout, not the insurer themselves, who's the one also on the line for giving you that money to begin with. And so there's a real advantage of us being a separate brand to the insurer and in fact, working with all their other friends. So they use this data source because everybody else uses this data source. They're all sort of relying on it here. So there's a a, a huge value that they see uh, in this and the way that we are kind of positioning ourselves as um, being able to serve and, and help everybody and really just focusing on kind of what we do best. Like Floodbase does very few things and very few things well, but what we do do, we're extremely focused on being the best at it. And that is monitoring floods continuously as reliably and seamlessly and knowing how often that's going to happen. And that, I think that kind of reputation and that service within the ecosystem um, is one that they all really uh, appreciate. So best outside. All right. Sounds good. What do you think is your differentiation? Is that coming from the the technological side, what Subit was talking about from your innovation on the technology front? Or is it more on the fact that you can map floods in near real time now, you know, that can be a differentiation? I'm just curious about like, because if people go in Google flood maps, they can find hundreds of results, especially if you're an outsider, you can be a little confused or overwhelmed, really, in terms of how much you find. So I'm wondering how you differentiate yourself from both the technological standpoint, but also um, just by, you know, what kind of products you have. Yeah, I think when you think about differentiation within the market, you really need to think about fit for purpose. Uh, There's lots of really cool tech out there. And and it's actually pretty easy to make a flood map. Um, You can just go on. We always encourage people, we just need one flood map. They don't care if it's like even super, super accurate. Like, you know, give it a go yourself. Like here's some code. We actually train governments around the world and give them code and just like, hey, Here's use this little snippet and you can now map floods anywhere um, with, you know, with Google Earth Engine or another free product. But if what insurers need is an incredible amount of reliability on any given day over the course of their, you know, physical asset or an entire country, that is a level of quality that um, really only we've been able to achieve. And so it's really about that fixing that exact problem that's required to the level that that user needs it and then matching the 
huge amount of scientific innovation that we've done really just to be able to meet that standard. And then there's kind of a, a second thing here, because all of that is, I'd say, technical, some good product work to make sure you really understand your user, how they need it delivered, the level of quality, the trade-offs. So a lot of times they'll actually, insurers, for instance, will sacrifice resolution for just reliability over a large space. So we're often using 250 meter pixel modus, but we're capturing really accurately whether or not the 50 or 100 year flood has happened, because that's generally, you know, larger than 250 meter. And there, that's okay if you're at the accuracy you need. So fit for purpose, designed for the question. But the second thing is really developing that trust that we mentioned before, because you know how to work with them. So we've got experts in insurance, not just in insurance, in parametric insurance, or what they literally call alternative risk. Um, and um, really understanding how they work, how they, what their underwriting process is like, what kind of questions or data they need to fit their our data inside of, how they like to sell their products and how we can help them look good in front of their customers. All of that work is really developing trust and usability in all that fancy technology. And I think that is actually a massive differentiator um, that really feeds into just the ultimate like fit for purpose and how much you're serving your ultimate users. Got it. Um, I wanted to ask, there is someone who is actually starting a company today and who is looking at a new technological innovation like y'all did probably 10 years ago or less than 10 years ago. What would be your advice to them? Because obviously they are looking at it today from a very scientific perspective um, and they are looking to you know solve that problem first. But then to what, what what would you advise them in terms of seeing the commercial potential of that and you know becoming a company like how you've become bring a level of humility to the way that you're looking at the world and that translates into trying to deeply understand the users who you may end up serving have real amount of empathy there i think those of us who came from academia and thought of our you know grand ideas and these like cool new things that could be because of the state of the technology while we were in grad school, sometimes forget to really think then about what value this is actually creating for Hume out in, in the market. And that matters way more than anything else. Like we don't care, you know, the fact that we were on the cover of nature, the fact that we're on absolutely the cutting edge and always working with the latest um, data providers doing some like incredibly cool stuff that we're publishing on. All of that is subservient to the end value that our users need and the gap in the market that is preventing them from covering more folks with insurance or adapting to climate change. And so I'd say really become um, not just a student of your technology, but a student of the users who you think you want to solve. And, you know, probably won't be the first folks that you, you know, encounter or talk to, but be incredibly curious and look for the person who has a burning problem, not just kind of a problem, but, mm -hmm. you know, a migraine, not a headache, and just really become a student of, of them, not just the technology that you think you've made that can help them. Got it. Subit, anything to add? Because, you know, it seems like you've had a journey of working in that problem. And I don't want to say like working within a box, the technological box or a technological bubble, and then transitioning into how that's useful commercially, because I wanted to get your thoughts on what would you say to folks who are trying to work or are probably working today in that bubble? Uh, but then, you know, they can probably not see that commercial potential. I don't know if you saw 10 years ago or whenever you started working in this domain. Uh, no, I, I 
I totally did not. I think I was just like interested in using it to kind of like satisfy a use case. And then I became kind of like really fascinated by different use cases. I think like what I would say is, you know, to paraphrase uh, the great Joe Morrison, uh, it's hard to be a great analytics provider and it's hard to be a great satellite imagery provider. It's impossible to do both of those at the same time. Uh, and I think like, you know, when you're kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of new interesting companies who are, you know, kind of like trying to become like um, imagery providers. Um, and that's great, except what they found is that like the imagery market is super commoditized and it's very hard to kind of like have, you know, demand multiples of kind of like, you know, the cost to produce the imagery. And, and then they're like, oh, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take on a vertical and then like, you know, offer you a solution. But that is not commoditized anymore. And usually that does not kind of, you know, like serve anyone's use case because you can you can't do it, do it right. So I would say, like, just pick one of those. Actually, when I was kind of like prepping uh, this weekend, I was all, you know, I tried to do fun things as well on weekends. And I was reading this paper called uh, Seeing Like a Satellite, Remote Sensing and the Ontological Politics of Environmental Security. And there's like a really interesting thing that the author says, which is that environmental risks and threats are never can never be monitored by a single technology. They never become visible on a single image, but become enacted by a complex web of linked inscription devices, practices, and discourses. So I think that for any single company to kind of like own any complete vertical, like from the image, pro, pro, you know, producing the image to kind of like helping the customer is like really difficult. And I would really encourage people to kind of like, you know, either do like the, you know, data analytics insight provider thing or do the satellite imagery thing but don't try to be, be, be both maybe, maybe someone will surprise me and be like you know best at both of those things but it seems unlikely well i think you know at least on just to be a devil's advocate on that i think there are some use cases where that's possible where they are launching for with a purpose there are some satellites that are launched with a purpose in mind uh, as opposed to launching a technology if they're launching for a purpose then it makes sense uh, then it's fine then, yeah because then you're not trying to also sell you know commoditized yeah. like imagery right so yeah, yeah 100% cool sounds good uh anything else that you want to add anything else we missed any other plugs before we close Yes, absolutely. We are hiring right now. Uh, so we'd love, uh, we're looking for a bunch of folks uh, to join this uh, and build this uh, company, this mission uh, alongside us. So uh, please check it all out on our, our website. We've got a bunch of technical positions. Uh, Subit will fill in them specifically when I'm done here and then a bunch of uh, go-to-market positions with uh, product marketing folks, uh, sales folks. Um but some really exciting technical positions. Yeah, uh, climate data scientists and some software engineers. So um, feel free to you know DM me on Twitter or send me an email. All right, sounds good. Brilliant. Thanks a bit. Thanks, Bessie. Thanks for being on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, yeah, this everyone. was great.